Let's open up in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 9. We're in Matthew 9 together. The title of this message is Feasting Instead of Fasting, which probably sounds better to you, to feast than to fast. We're looking at verses 14 through 16. I will be reading and preaching from the NIV. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. It says in verse 14, Then John's disciples came and asked Jesus, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And both are preserved. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as your church today, you would help us to feast on your truth, on your presence on your love for us, Christ, who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for the glorious truths that are laid out in your word about our salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the joy and the celebration that comes from that. Pray that the joy of the Lord would be evident in us, working in us, giving us strength, forming who we are as a people the way that we live, because we've been so loved and have so great a salvation. So help us to hear your word today and what it says about how we're to interact with you, the joy that's been brought to us, the feast that your love is. Help me now, Lord, to teach and preach faithfully, to think and speak clearly, that your purposes might be achieved, that your glory might be made known. We ask that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we spent quite a few weeks now in Matthew's chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8 and 9. And as I said last week, if you were here, what we see in these chapters is that Jesus is on a roll. I mean, he really is. He's healing all sorts of people. The crowds are getting enormous. He touched the leper and healed him. He healed the paralytic. He casts the demons out of the guy. He's forgiving sins. He calls Matthew and Matthew abandons his tax office and comes and follows Jesus. And then we see Jesus is at a dinner party with tax collectors and sinners. He's been on a real roll in these chapters. And with that roll has come real opposition. At every step, there's been some opposition, and it's usually come from those who are viewed as religious authorities or the day, or those who, who would have seemed to have sort of a corner on, on religious things at the time. Jesus has been questioned a few times now. This is the third questioning that we see of him while he's on this role in these chapters. The first time that Jesus was questioned was when he said to the paralytic who was layered on the mat in front of him, you'll remember, he said to him, my son, your sins have been forgiven. And the religious leaders were thinking in their mind, who does he think he is that he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. You'll remember that Jesus addressed that by doing a great miracle. And then last week after he called Matthew the tax collector, who would have been voted least likely to get saved at Galilee High School, 
He's having dinner with his tax collector buddies and his sinner buddies, Matthews and uh, buddies, and Jesus is there. And the Pharisees say to him, say to his disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you'll remember that Jesus responded by saying, it's not the sick who need, it's not the, excuse me, well who need the a physician, but the sick. I've come to seek and to save the lost, he communicated to them. And now we see Jesus being questioned again. John's disciples, it's John the Baptist's disciples. They come and they say to Jesus, why is it that we fast often, and even the Pharisees fast on a regular basis, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answers them once again. And he does so with three different metaphors. There's three metaphors that Jesus employs in this text to answer this question. Only one of them is central. Only one of them is of real great importance. One of them has Old Testament underpinnings and paint a really important picture of who Christ is and what he's doing. One of these metaphors is the main point. The other two about the patch and the wineskins are merely supporting metaphors or illustrative, illustrating analogies to help communicate Jesus's main point. And the main point is easy for us to understand. This text is easy to understand. You, you get the main point. The main point is easy for you to understand because you understand weddings. You understand weddings. How many of you have ever been to a wedding? How many of wish you, you wish you could go to your wedding soon? Okay, here we go. Maybe some hookups. Hold, uh, no. But you guys all understand weddings. You understand the bare essentials that are required for a wedding. There is a bride, there is a groom, there are guests, and a party. Bare essentials for a wedding. There's bride, groom, guests, and party. I, I, maybe some people do it without the party, but why? <laughs> there's a bride, there's a groom, there are guests, and there is a party. You understand that. And this is really all we need to know to get the main point. John the Baptist's disciples who were asking the question understood that as well. They couched their question in terms of fasting, but their question question wasn't about fasting. Their question and their wondering was really about a wedding. It wasn't about fasting. It was actually about feasting. They understood the basic elements of a wedding, and they should have understood the metaphor that Jesus was communicating and the reality of that that was being displayed before them in Jesus' interaction with the world around him and his disciples. They should have understood that because their leader, John the Baptist, communicated about Jesus in terms of the same metaphor. Do you remember in John chapter 3 when Jesus said this? Uh, Excuse me, John the Baptist said this. That's a big Big point of confusion. John the Baptist said, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. There's that wedding imagery. The friend who attends the bridegroom, guests, maybe the best man in this case, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Party. That joy is mine and is now complete. He, speaking of Jesus, must increase. I must become less. 
He must increase, I must decrease, John the Baptist said. So John the Baptist spoke of the coming of Christ, people that would follow him, and even his relationship to Jesus as the forerunner, the one who was heralding his coming, in terms of this wedding imagery. Why is Jesus employing wedding imagery? Why did John the Baptist employ wedding imagery? Because that is a primary biblical image. That's a primary Old Testament metaphor for what it is God intends to do for his people in the world. We see it all over the Old Testament, but let's look at a couple examples. Let's go to Isaiah. God here says, For Zion's sake, his people's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem, for that place's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. Okay, so we're talking about God acting to save his people. Verse two, the nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand a royal diadem in the hand of your God, verse 4. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hafzabah, which means delights in you, and your land Beulah, which means married. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. That's the the main picture. The main thing that we want to get there is him saying in verse 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Through this text and other texts and through the metaphor, the image of a marriage, and the celebration that goes along with it, God is communicating to his people that one day he would draw near to them and rescue them, save them, and connect himself to them in an unprecedented way, in a way that was so deep and relational and so wrought with and filled with love that the best analogy or metaphor or picture that you could find is, is marriage and the intimacy intended therein. And this would be a great saving act of God, by God, on behalf of his people. It says there that it would be so salvifically great that it would be like the dawning of the sun, that they from it would get a new identity, that where they were desolate, they would be delighted in. Where they felt deserted, they would now be married to God. And they would become to God his treasure. And what God would do one day for his people in his love, would be a reason for celebration, right? What does a wedding have? A bride, a groom, guests, and a party. It would be reason for celebration. We pick up more of this beautiful imagery in Isaiah chapter 55. God says to us, fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced but you will forget the shame of your youth. Someone to whom that sounds good, say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, 
who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you. You were like a forsaken wife and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. But the point is, God has called you. And so this, this, this event that was future at the time of Isaiah, which would cause God to be able to say to his people, don't fear. I'm going to remove your humiliation. I'm going to remove your shame. I'm going to remove the disgrace that came along with your sin. I'm going to restore fellowship and relationship and intimacy so that it looks like a marriage. This was to cause hope and expectancy in the life of Israel. In light of these sorts of scriptures, they lived in the hope of the coming of the Messiah. They lived in great anticipation and expectancy of the day that God would become the groom. Because they knew, as we know, the horror of the effects of sin. They knew the way that sin destroys comes against our relationship with God, our relationship with one another. They understood the pervasive effects of sin in the world. And so when God says, I'm going to come and do something that's going to remove those effects, that was something to look forward to. Because sin carried for them, as it does for us, a real sense of shame, humiliation, disgrace, So much so that God commanded Israel to actually remember their shame, humiliation, and disgrace one time a year. It's the only time that Israel was commanded to fast. There's a lot of fasting in the Old Testament, plenty of times where God's people fasted, but there's only one time where it was commanded. That was on the Day of Atonement. And the sort of language that God uses there is he tells his people, and you shall humble yourselves or humiliate yourselves through fasting. The idea is that they would for this one day recognize and be called to sit in the reality of the shame and the disgrace and the effects of their sin. To recognize it, to sit in it. It's the only time that God told his people, you must fast, is a day where it was a humbling of their souls. And the reason they were to do it on that day is because on that day, the high priest would make a series of sacrifices that would atone or cover their sins as a nation. But before that was made, they were to recognize our sins actually be made, excuse me, they were to recognize our sins actually need covering. You know, this is real. Sin against God is real. The effects that it has on me and those around me is is real. And so they were to fast as a way of remembering, sitting in, expressing feeling, feeling that, expressing remorse over that. And then the glorious moment where the high priest came and made the sacrifices that looked forward to Jesus, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then their mourning would be turned into dancing. The humiliation into joy. A picture of their shame and their disgrace being removed through the sacrifice that God provided. So fasting on that day is prescribed by God was a way to express remorse about sin, to sit in the reality of it and know that we need to be reconciled to a holy God. That was the whole idea behind John the Baptist's ministry 
right? John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Messiah. And in so doing, he called Israel to repentance, right? That's what he was doing. He was out in the wilderness. He was this crazy guy who wore camel's hair and ate bugs and all this thing stuff. And he was calling them to repentance. The Messiah is coming. We ought to repent. We ought to realize that sin is real, that our rebellion against God is real, that we've incurred debt. We ought to turn from that and begin to turn toward God. That was his whole ministry. It was based in some ways on that day of atonement picture or paradigm, the humiliation of sin, the joy of forgiveness. So when his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, come to Jesus and ask the question, look, we fast on a regular basis, often they said, as do the Pharisees. Why don't your disciples fast? His answer was obvious as it should have been in the prevailing metaphor that they should have understood from John. He says to them in verse 15, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? He's saying to them, that day for which you have lived in expectancy, those ancient promises that were given to Israel are coming true. That day has arrived. The light has shone in the darkness. Christ the Savior has come to be the sacrifice for our sins, to remove our shame, our disgrace, our humiliation, turn our mourning into joy. The time has arrived where we'll be given a new identity as the treasured, beloved bride of God. And in that, there is meant to be delight. We're to delight in him as a groom. He delights in us, in the bride. There's to be joy and reconciliation. He's saying to them, everything that you have been fasting for as Israel is being achieved and realized by my coming, Jesus the Messiah. In other words, he says to them, and I suspect that their question came just on the heels of that big party that he had with tax collectors and sinners. He said to them, listen, the bridegroom has come. The party has started. And you guys, John the Baptist's uh, disciples, have been doing a good job living expectantly as you should have, but now is a time to enter in joyfully. You've done it. You've been living expectantly. You're practicing it through regular fasting, but now is the time to enter in joyfully. His answer was an invitation. His answer was a reminder, reminder, excuse me, it was a, a revelation. He said to them, in essence, you guys are still fasting, but now you ought to be feasting. You ought to be feasting, not fasting. In other words, he says to them, the way that you are continuing to approach God is no longer fitting. A new way has come. It's no longer fitting. It's like a patch that you try to put on a piece of clothing and it pulls away when it shrinks. It's no no longer fitting. It's like wineskins, old wineskins, and you put new wine in it, and when the new wine ferments and and, and multiplies its volume, those wineskins burst. It's no longer fitting. There's a new way that has come. There was real validity to to what they were doing. We could understand why they're asking the question, but this was the day of transition. It should have been moving from fasting into feasting. Those ways of approaching God 
didn't make sense, nor did they work in light of the bridegroom's presence. He said, it's like a patch. Put it on there, it shrinks, it pulls away. It doesn't work. It's like a wineskin. By the way, aren't you thankful for wine bottles? <laughs> that you don't have to drink from wine skin. You realize it's the skin of an animal that's been gutted. All the orifices have been sewed up. It's been treated to a certain degree so that bad taste is minimized. And the wine is kept in that and you tie a little string around the neck and there's your wine jug. Aren't you thankful for bottles? But when those wineskins would get old, they would become brittle. And if new wine was put in them, and again, through the fermentation process, the volume increased, those things would burst. He would say, the way that you're doing it is no longer fitting. There was some validity to it, but a new day has dawned. Their idea of fasting is prescribed in the Old Testament. It's mourning over sin and an endeavor to draw near to God through that. But the bridegroom had come and drawn near to them. So there's a real change that takes place. Romans represents it. It says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, okay, about what we do or do not, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what they were missing. They were still thinking that it was about external observation, and the things that they had to do, and what they could eat, and what they couldn't eat. But a new day had come. All of those things look forward to this day. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Spirit. You guys are fasting. I'm inviting you to start feasting. Colossians explains this day of transition by saying, therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Right? That's what they were doing with the disciples. Or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So it's not that what they were doing was in and of itself wrong. They may have fallen into some rote sort of behavior and traditionalism, but there were some biblical underpinnings to it. But the sense of what they were to be was a shadow, a signpost, a looking forward to the greater reality. This is where we as a church get our name from this verse. Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. Those things, all those external things we do, and they did, all of those things are just a shadow. The reality of it is found in Jesus. And he says to John's disciples, you're playing with shadows. Enter into the reality. The bridegroom has come. You're, entered, you're, you're invited into the celebration. So I don't know. We don't, we, we don't have the rest of the story from them. But that probably would have been a really decisive moment in their lives. We do know from church history that in the second century, there were still disciples of John the Baptist. We see in the late, in the late chapters of the book of Acts that some people were still baptized with John the Baptist's baptism and they hadn't been baptized in the name of Jesus yet. So some people never made that transition. Listen to me now. This might have something to do with you. They had a hard time transitioning from the fasting to the feasting. So we might think about these patches and these wineskins as ways that we might endeavor to relate to God that in light of what God has done are not wholly fitting. They don't quite get it done. We might have some of these patches and some of these wineskins. We might have some areas where we need to transition. 
Think about some of our own patches. Think about the patch of trying to hide our sin from God. Anybody ever do that? You're doing it right now. You're lying, right? Nobody ever does that. <laughs> you know, it, we, we understand biblically and maybe even intuitively that God sees all things that he knows, but we try to hide them in the sense that we never really bring it out into the light of repentance. Unrepentant sin, we might call it, right? Ways of relating to God, we say, ah, maybe this thing isn't so bad, or I'll just hold on to this, or I'll just compartmentalize this, or I'll just keep it over there. And we never really invite Jesus into it. We never bring him into the booth to use last week's imagery and say, Jesus, I want you to see this booth and these things that have a hold on me and confront them. We never take him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to use the imagery from a couple weeks ago and say, here's my dark side, Jesus. Here's the place where it smells of death. And there's secret violence and access is being cut off. We have these places that we sometimes think, well, maybe it's just better if I keep it from God. But you know what we do? We forget the beauty of the promises of God. Look again at Isaiah 54. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Don't feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. The reason that we sometimes hide those things and harbor those things is there's a real sense of shame there and disgrace. And we, we might get that, and so we hold on to them. That's a patch that doesn't fit anymore because of what God has done in Christ. So now we're told things like this in 1 John in the New Testament. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If... On the other hand, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See how there's a a better way? There's new wine, right? And the old patch and the old skin of like, ah, maybe I'll just hide it and hold on to it. And we kind of keep with these things for years. It, It doesn't work. It's unfitting. We've been brought something better in Jesus through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So that though we have this tendency, and maybe it's intuitive, to run from and hide from God when we sin, Adam and Eve in the garden, the gospel has brought us reason to bring into the light our sin and run to God for forgiveness, the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So we need to surrender the patch of hidden sin. Think about wineskins, old wineskins that we have. What about the old wineskin of beating ourselves up over our sin? You know, there's some like deep religious thing in us. You see it reflected in some of the world's religions. You see it reflected in asceticism. You see it reflected in, in Christian legalism even where we think, gosh, I've really blown it. I've blown it again. And it's not that we're hiding it. We actually bring it out in the open, but we do the wrong thing with it. We think, well, if I somehow beat myself up over this, it'll make up for it before God. We might not use that phraseology, though religions in the world do. Remember the prophets of Baal beating themselves to try to get their God's attention? There's lots of expressions. But oftentimes we're just by staying in our guilt and in our shame. Sometimes that happens because the enemy is taking advantage of us. He's the accuser of the brethren. Sometimes that happens because it satisfies some wrong sense of religiosity where we just think, well, I got to punish myself. Anybody relate to this kind of stuff? 
but we've been given better promises. Remember Isaiah once again. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. You will forget the shame of your youth. You know what Jesus does with our sins? He removes them as far as the east is from the west. He buries them in the deepest sea. He chooses to remember them no more. Christ was beaten and broken upon the cross, bled for us that that sin might be forgiven. Don't beat yourself up over what Christ was beaten in your place for. It's just not right for us to hold against ourselves what Christ has forgiven us of. God no longer holds it against us when we confess it and give it to Christ in faith. Why can we hold it against ourselves? It's not right. And so the New Testament tells us, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll just read that much. What did Jesus say on the cross at the end? It is finished which also means in Greek, paid in full. The full debt of our sins was dealt with. The full price was dealt with. The full offense against God, the fullness of God's righteous standard was met on our behalf. So that when we fail, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's none. God has no condemnation toward us. Satan would like to see us condemned. Let's partner with the truth of the gospel and what Christ has done for us, not with the enemy and what he would like to do to us. Old wineskins, beating ourselves up over our sin. It's not fitting anymore. We've been forgiven in Christ when we put our faith in him. What about the patch of trying to prove ourselves to God? The patch of trying to prove ourselves to God. You know, we live in a culture that very much says, prove yourself. And it's very much performance-oriented. That'll be our, our, our next point. There, there's a corollary. I kind of get sloppy and overlap the two here. But, but we live in a very performance-oriented culture, right? Where we basically say, if you do well, then I will treat you well. And, and part of our whole culture is based on that thing. So there's something deep in us that we feel like we have to prove ourselves, and that gets extrapolated or imported into our Christianity. And we think that somehow we need to prove ourselves to God. The beauty of the cross is that we have nothing to prove. Christ has done all of it for us. Remember the glorious promises of Isaiah again. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you are a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. God has come after us in love, even with our sin and our inadequacies. So there's nothing to prove. There's nothing to prove before God. Listen, let me tell you what's already been proven. You're bad. I'm bad. We're bad. The reason that the law was given to us is only and always to show that we are bad. The law only ever proves us to be bad. That's not the question anymore. So what are you trying to prove? We're bad. But we are loved. So Christ took our place upon the cross. 
And again, we're not loved because we ever did anything. We're loved before we were ever made mind blower, right? Ephesians says this. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we have performed well all the time. Oh, it doesn't say that? Not even the message says that. Because we are united with Christ. I'm kidding. I actually enjoy sometimes this. I withdraw. I recant. Verse 4. Even before he made the world, before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through our good works. No. Through Jesus Christ. This is what we earned. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. See how silly it sounds when we slip in there our performance and us proving ourselves and what we've earned? It sounds so ridiculous to our ears. But don't we spend a lot of time trying to do that? We may not put it in that sort of phraseology, but we sure do feel better about ourselves before God when we perform well. And we imagine that God feels better about us. And then we also imagine on the other side of the coin that God feels bad about us when we don't perform well. That's the next point, which I can't remember, so we'll put it up there. The patch of, uh, no, go to the next one. The old wineskin of feeling accepted or rejected by God based on my performance. We probably don't say it because when we read it in Ephesians, it's the dumbest sounding thing in the world. But we kind of live it out. And we perform badly and we think, well, God is God and God can't like me today. Or we perform well and we might not say it because it seems blasphemous, but we act this way towards one another's, toward one another. God likes me more because I do well. And that's a real evil. You know, what, what sits behind to some degree, the Pharisees and their fasting, John the Baptist's fasting was, we're, we're, we're kind of super spiritual, and Jesus is obvious that your followers are not. There's something real wrong to that, isn't there? We do it on occasion. But perhaps the, the greater danger is how, how we do it within ourselves. God is sad at me, mad at me. Oh, God thinks I'm awesome now. Man, the gospel frees us from that. We have better promises. Isaiah again. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of God. You're his treasure. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephizabah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your lamb will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so your builder will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. I know we read that already, but I wanted us to read it again. And do you know what sits behind the idea of marriage? This is a little bit graphic, but you need to hear it. Is that when you're in a good marriage, you're able to be naked and unashamed. That's the way that it was in the garden. In some way, there's a metaphor, a picture in marriage, played out in the garden, played out in this relationship. That way, that's why it says in Genesis, they were in the garden placed there by God and they were naked and unashamed. It wasn't until sin came in that shame entered. 
God is saying to you, someday in my relationship with you, through my son, the Messiah, the groom, I will free you from this need to perform or look good or be better or feelings of failure before God. Before me, he says, you will be able to be naked and unashamed. I will be your husband. Isn't that good? In light of the bridegroom coming and bringing salvation and us being the beloved, the bride, patches and old wineskins, those lesser ways of relating to God, don't make sense and they do not work. We have something better. The wedding, the celebration, the party. John the Baptist's disciples were fasting when they should have been feasting. So we should think about ourselves and where we make ourselves go hungry. Hiding sin, beating ourselves up, trying to prove ourselves. Where we make ourselves go hungry in wrong religious performance rather than accepting what Christ has done for us on the cross and that we have become the beloved bride of God, his special treasure. Where are you living lean? And you ought to be living fat. Where is there fasting? And there ought to be feasting. It's not to say that fasting isn't still valid. Jesus did say in the second part of verse 15, right? There's coming a time where the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. But fasting in the New Testament takes on a different dimension. In the New Testament, fasting is no longer about the desperation over our sin and the hope of relationship restored, but fasting is now done in delight that our sin has been removed and intimacy has been restored. He didn't say we never fast again. He said we fast in a different way. There's a time when the bridegroom will be taken away, speaking about after his resurrection, his ascension. And then my disciples will fast. Notice that he changed the word in the first part of verse 15. It was mourn. Now he says fasting. The mourning component is gone. Our mourning has been turned into dancing. That day of atonement imagery of humiliation over our sins has been soaked up into the cross. And now we don't fast because God somehow seems far to us as rebels. Now we fast because God has come near to us in Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, because of his great love. So we still see fasting in the New Testament. Only three times in the book of Acts, Acts 13, they're fasting because they're called out on mission. Acts 14, they're fasting because they're starting new churches. Acts 29, I can't remember why they're fasting, but the idea is there's this this new sense of it's not someday we hope to get to God, now it's God is with us. And so there's a celebration in the life of the believer. We might still fast at certain times where we need spiritual strength or power inside or, you know, I I, I preached a sermon on fasting a couple months ago. Go get it. But the predominant thing that Jesus is saying is you have been invited into feasting. There's a wedding, there's a bride, there's a groom, there's guests, and there's a party. And you have been invited into the party. But we know, don't we, that the party's not over yet. In fact, the party hasn't even reached its crescendo yet. There's still party days 
coming. Book of Revelation, turn there and we'll end right here. Turn to Book of Revelation, chapter 19. That's at the end of the Bible. Revelation, chapter 19. We'll start in verse 6. Revelation 19, 6. John writes and says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, party language, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. What is pictured there is the second coming of Christ. When Christ returns, the groom for his bride, and there is the fullest expression of the party. We're meant to live in celebration now. The Lord's Supper that we could take today together is part of that celebration. The way that we sit in the forgiveness of sins, the way that we're free from performance, the way we can confess our sins and not run from God in shame, that is all part of the party. But there's a coming a day of like big party, full on party, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we live in this really cool posture of looking back to when the party started, Jesus inviting them into it right here, and looking forward to when the party reaches its crescendo and then it just stays there. Just crescendo of glory for all time. Revelation 21, just one more little one. Revelation 21, part of the party, says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. See that imagery all the way back from the Old Testament? All the way to the end. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now, is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is a celebration that we live in light of and are living toward in Christ and what he's done for us. Find yourself feasting on the truth, the beauty, and the love of God in Christ, for this is who we are, his bride. Amen? Thank you, Lord.
for your glorious love for us. And in light of these things, we say together with the Spirit, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Thank you for the party that is to come, but thank you for the party in which we live. Help us to lay aside our patches and our old wineskins and press into the party of our union with you. Teach us to enjoy so great a love, to live into and live out of so glorious a salvation. Lord, maybe some people today, they just need to bring those sins to you. Thank you that repentance is a beautiful word. For in it we experience forgiveness and the refreshment of God. Refresh those who are weary and heavy laden today with guilt and shame as they confess their sins to you, put their faith in you and what you did upon the cross. You forgive us, heal us and restore us. Thank you for that glorious, glorious thing. For those of us who feel far off, thank you, Jesus, that you are our groom. Draw near to us. Bless us with your presence and the fullness thereof. May your nearness be our good. May we discover the fullness of joy in your presence. And may the joy of the Lord be our strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.